Genesis 12 is where we're going to start today. Actually, we're going to start in the New Testament, but stay in Genesis if you would, uh, as we're in a series called The Rest of the Story. And let me just welcome, I know that everyone is special to being here, but it was so cool. I got to see uh, Tyler and Paige Stanton up here in the middle over here, our Chi Alpha directors uh, from North Carolina State University in the Raleigh area. And if you're not familiar with Chi Alpha, one of the most amazing campus ministries that's happened across our nation and honestly our world, we're just still holding out for one in Charlotte. So we're praying, all right? Not that we're going to have the biggest university in North Carolina in years, but we're just praying because we're looking for that. But they're here today for a very special reason you'll be part of at the end of the service today. (sighs) Everybody take a breath. I feel like we've been running. Yeah. You had an extra hour of sleep last night. Wasn't that good? Anybody forget? This is the one you can forget. Then you actually show up on time. It's awesome. Genesis 15 is a story we're going to look at in the life of Abraham. We're talking about the rest of the story, and it really circles around this question of when did the story of Jesus begin for you? When did the story of Jesus begin for you? And really, that, that leads to a couple of different avenues of how you can answer that question, because we can look at it from the standpoint of when did he become my Savior and Lord? Because if he is, then you know that. How, how many know you remember the day of your salvation, right? You remember the day when you, you bowed the knee and you, you bowed the heart to the Lord, and it wasn't just something emotional, but you said, please, Lord, have all of me, and you surrender your life to Christ. But there's also a second way to answer that question, and that is, when do you see the ministry of Jesus starting here? When do, you, when do you see Jesus' story beginning? And literally in, in our culture, most people would say, well, we're about to get to Christmas, right? Because that, that's when it starts. He's the babe in the manger. And we, we all walk through that. And as we've been teaching through the life of Jesus throughout this year in the book of Mark, it really captured my attention to, for this last little segment to go back in the Word of God to the Old Testament and say, no, no, no. The ministry of Jesus Christ did not start in a manger, somebody. It began in the beginning. In fact, before the beginning, when we were created by our God. You see, what happens is, is so often we can limit Jesus to just what, we, what we've heard or what we see and we come around, especially in the New Testament. And as we saw last week in a story that came out of the book of Luke, there you can be a believer and be very close to Jesus and absolutely miss what he's here and who he really is. You can miss what he does. In fact, there are many that live in a disappointment in God because expectations that they, they have on Jesus that don't always come into their lives. And we, we saw that in a story uh, with Jesus talking to some disciples after his resurrection because when we think about Jesus, we've got to recognize that the Old Testament is, is also the place of revealing of our Jesus. We see it in the prophecies. We looked at that last week in Isaiah 53, where he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastisement of peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are what? Amen, right? And we celebrate that. And it's not just a communion scripture. It was a prophecy. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever, ever came in the incarnation of the Christ, our Savior. We see it in the foreshadowing of him. That's what we're going to look at today. And the absolute claims in the Bible that he is the one and only Son of God, promised Messiah who came to save us from our sin. When Mel was mentioning the the young lady, the the Muslim young lady, listen, uh, you know, you see all the bumper stickers coexist. We should get along with everybody. Amen. But there's only one way through salvation is through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We, we can never lower that down, guys. We just can't. But yet there's nobody that's our enemy or our opposition. It's everyone who can be part of our family when they come to Christ as their Savior. So we started looking at this story through the lens of Jesus. In Luke 24, I'll just kind of re-remind us about this. It was the re- resurrection day, and these two disciples were walking a seven-mile journey on the road to Emmaus. 
And on the way, Jesus kind of, the resurrected Christ began to walk with them, and he came up beside them, but they didn't recognize him. And he, and he, and he asked them the question that I just imagine stopped them in their tracks. He's like, what are you talking about, guys? And they just had that, that moment where they looked at him like, really? And, and you see on the screen, it says in Luke 24, 18, they said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So many live in a but we had hoped mindset. But we had hoped that grandma wouldn't have passed away. We, we, had, we had hoped that I wouldn't have lost that job. We, we had hoped that marriage would be something more than, than where we are in this moment. And we, we put our expectations around this miracle worker, teacher, that, that even the disciples missed the point that he is truly Messiah, the, the King of kings and Lord of lords, our God. And because of that, their expectations and reality didn't line up because their life wasn't better always now. And they walked into this disappointment he said, but we would have hoped he'd have kicked out the Romans at least. We would have hoped he'd have made Israel great again. Not only have they been missing him, but they missed the fact now they're saying even his body's gone. We are disappointed. But he said to them, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart and believe all the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they invited him to stay. And then he revealed himself. It was at a table. You were with us last week. And he broke bread and he blessed it and they gave the wine. In that moment, they recognized this is the risen Jesus. And they disappeared from their sight. And really, we learned some things last week that we just have to solidify, especially when we go into this teaching today. And the first is this, guys. Before it all started, Jesus was there. Before it all started, Jesus was there. He has no beginning and no end. He is our creator. In fact, we saw this in Genesis 1:26, when in the creation story, it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. I asked when the story of Jesus began. And we have to recognize he is our creator, God, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I will not try to explain the Trinity. Ask me in about when we get to heaven. But anyway, it is an understanding of our God working through the uniqueness of his Son and working through the uniqueness of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't begin in a manger. He's not a cute little baby that we're going to celebrate in a few, a few weeks, and then we give away presents and forget about him. No, he was there in the beginning of creation, and through him all things came. Look at this scripture in Colossians. I know, like, we're going to get to Genesis in a minute, but look at this scripture in Colossians chapter 1. It'll be on the screen. Paul wrote this. He said, he, speaking of Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Look, guys, you were created for him and by him. You are a unique creation in the sight of our Lord. You have value that is infinite, and you need to understand that. How do we measure our value? Not whether you had a good day or not, or even a good life. We, value our, we, we measure our value by the cross. 
We, we measure our value by the price that was paid that we may have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, who was there in the beginning. We also learned last week that whenever God showed up in the Old Testament, Jesus showed up. In fact, you see it again and again. You'll see, you'll see moments in the Old Testament where, where the angel of the Lord, it'll be that title, will show up and it'll speak to people and he'll say things like, and I promise you this in my name. Can I tell you, that was the pre-incarnate Jesus showing up. We see the burning bush is a good example of that because again, Jesus was working the work of God throughout the New Testament. And the final thing we saw last week is the Old Testament points to Jesus. I don't know how you can read the Old Testament and not see Jesus. I, you have to be blinded to not see that. Because the Bible's one story. It's not, it's not one story that we can ignore the first half and just get to the good stuff. In fact, you don't understand the second half unless you read the first half. It's one story, the story of God, with one section that looks forward to Jesus and the other that relates the life and the work of Jesus back to God's original creation plan for mankind. And really, the hinge point of it all is not Christmas, the hinge point is Easter. I, people are like, you don't get so excited about Christmas, man. You really get excited about Easter. I'm, I'm thankful that Jesus came incarnate in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. But if he didn't go to the cross and raise from the grave, guess what? We'd just be telling stories about a martyr. Right. Yeah, true. But he came to give us life, and that life more abundantly. And so today I want to bring you into an Old Testament story. That it's a little different. Instead of being a prophecy, it's more of a foreshadowing. And it really is a foreshadowing of the greatest event ever. That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, I call this message this morning Abraham's Easter. Abraham's Easter story. Remember Abraham, or maybe you're not familiar, but Abraham is known as the father of faith. He's the one through whom the Jewish people have come. He's the one through, through this lineage, the Messiah, had come our Savior, Jesus Christ. In this day of all the anti-Semitism we're seeing because of what's happening in Israel and Gaza right now, never forget God's people are his people. And through them, we are blessed because of the Messiah that has come into our lives. I'll show you this in prophecy in a moment in the Scripture. And his story breaks down as follows, and that is this. God made a promise to Abraham, and he fulfilled it in a very unusual way. God made a promise to Abraham, and he fulfilled it in an unusual way. And through how he fulfilled it, he shows us something that was important to God then that is equally important to God now. So let's get ourselves into the story, and then we're going to show you how it relates into our Easter, our understanding of the resurrection of Christ. Abraham is about 75 years old at this point, but he's lacking something. He's lacking an heir. He's lacking a son. And in that day, forgive me, ladies, daughters weren't celebrated as much as sons. Because sons had a purpose that was, let's put it this way, they didn't have social security back in that day. Yes, we may not either, but anyway, that's a whole other story. But sons were, were meant to take care of their fathers and generations, especially the firstborn. So there was something about having an heir. There was something about having a son. It was a bad thing in that culture for a man not to have a son. But not only that, as we're going to see, God promised Abraham that he was going to bless him through his offspring. But yet at 75 years old, they were still childless. <laughs> and worse than that, kind of ironically, his name at this point was Abram, which means father. And yet he had no, he had no, he had no children. It, it's kind of like the irony, like, like if I was named Harry, it wouldn't make sense, right? So it's kind of that same way. So just the irony of it all. And we pick it up in Genesis 12, verse 1, the, the promise of God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. In other words, follow me to where I'll take you. And I'll make you of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, no, don't miss this, 
all the families on the earth shall be blessed. What a promise. Not, not that you're going to be a great people that your neighbors think you're kind of cool, but through you and through your offspring, through your lineage, ultimately all families on the earth shall be blessed. God's plan from the beginning was through Abraham, our Messiah would come and redeem us and bring us back into our relationship with God. And there we see the blessing that was forecast. But ironically, when Jesus came on the earth, the incarnation, Christmas, right? The, the baby in the manger, and then the man that came as our walk, walking, living uh, Savior. Ironically, by the time he showed up, the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the keeper of the law, they'd forgotten all about this part of the blessing. Oh, they love telling the story of Abraham. Abraham is the father of our faith. But they missed out on the fact that they were to be a blessing to all nations. In fact, by the time Jesus came, in the eyes of the religious leaders of that moment, anyone who was not Jewish at that time was a Gentile pig. <laughs> and they wouldn't associate with them or could even consider that God would want to bless them in any way at all. And they missed God's plan from the beginning. And church, listen carefully this morning. If we're not careful, we can do the same today. We can become so arrogant in our faith that we look down on others that are different than us. We can become so, so self-righteous that we make no room for those who are in the same condition that we once were before we came to know Christ as our Savior. Or worse yet, we can consider others who are opposed to God or, or how we live our faith out as enemies to be wiped out instead of potential family members to be won over. And we need to understand this. We live in a day that always demonizes the them. There is no them in the eyes of a Christian. Anyone that I meet is somebody who potentially become a member of the family of God. doesn't matter their background, their genealogy. doesn't matter their origin. It does not matter their lifestyle. Our God is able to save to the uttermost people. He's able to save all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And in our crazy environment, we all get charged up in politics and all that. Get back to being Christian. That's what this whole year has been about. That we don't look at somebody and say, oh, well, they believe differently. No. Do they know Jesus as their Savior and Lord? And I'm going to show you today the proof of what it means to know Jesus. Because there's only one thing that really proves our faith, and it's not our words. Because a lot of people can claim to be Christians and have nothing to do with Christ at all. Preaching too early here. Let me come back. So we must see that all people are someone that can be blessed by God through Christ. That was his plan all along, and his game plan started with, with Abraham. So now we're going to fast forward about 25 years in, in Abraham's life, and, and now God fulfills the promise, and he brings him the son Isaac, and, and now he, he sees not only an heir, but now he's got a lineage that's, that through him the Messiah may come. And then God does something really weird. Genesis chapter 22, just find your way over there, and we'll also have it on the screen for you. In Genesis chapter 22, we see the promise being fulfilled, and then this happens. Verse 1 says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And is that just not crazy? Now, you may have wanted to sacrifice your teenager at a point in time, but not, God is not asking of that from any of us. But here he gives him a blessing. 
Here's your heir. Here's who you've been waiting for. Abram's now like 100 years old. He has a kid, somebody. And now, now God's saying, take him up on this mountain and sacrifice him to me. How can a God of love ask that? I don't know if you struggle at all when you read the word. I know when I was a new believer and I remember reading this story the first time, I was angry. I'm like, God, that doesn't add up to what I was taught in Sunday school. God, that, that's not the Jesus of love that I want to come give him a hug. You know, this is what's going on here. But we forget that God knew the beginning from the end and exactly how this scenario was going to end. He was going to do something greater than just testing Abraham. He was foretelling the story of Jesus even in this moment, the story of the resurrection, thousands of years before it ever even occurred. I mean, look at the detail as we read this story, and you begin to see the parallels to the resurrection, the, 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 the coming of, of Christ out of that grave that gives us our hope as believers. Check it out. He says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Kind of sounds like a certain scripture in John chapter 3 that our, our kids can even quote. Many believers, the first one they learn, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes him should not perish but have eternal life. We start seeing these parallels. There's an interesting one that in my studies this week I'd never come across. It was new to me. And that was, he says, and go to the land of Moriah. And I'm like, where's Moriah? And who cares? Right? I mean, you do that a lot in the Old Testament. You read all these names and all these places. You're like, well, I'm sure there's somewhere there. And the only Moriah I know is sitting over here, so that didn't help me out. But I, but I began to study and look and say, well, what's, that, what's significant in the land of Moriah? And check it out. In 2 Chronicles 3.1, it says Moriah is a mountain outside of Jerusalem where Solomon built the first temple. It was the Temple Mount. It was a, it was a place where, where God established something. Because remember, when Abraham's story was unfolding, there was no Jerusalem. <laughs> it wasn't even formed yet. There was no place. But check out the parallel. Isaac was to be offered to God on a hill in Jerusalem, just as Jesus was crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem. In fact, many scholars believe it's the exact same hill, thousands of years before, foreshadowed. Look at Abraham's obedience, chapter, verse 3. So Abram rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, <laughs> Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Let me ask you this. How many days was Jesus considered dead? How many know from the moment that God spoke to Abraham to go and sacrifice your son, he was as good as dead in Abraham's eyes? He said on the third day, he lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Three days later, he'd receive his son back alive, but in that moment, he did not know. So in verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. How did he know that? Abraham, go sacrifice your son. Hey, guys, stay with the donkey. We're going up there, but my son and I will come back. Why? Because God had made a promise. Listen, guys, God's promise has been made yes and amen through Jesus Christ. God didn't make suggestions or ideas. God made promises that we base our faith and our life on. In fact, it won't be on the screen, but Genesis 21, verse 12, he promised Abraham through Isaac, your offspring, uh, shall your offspring be named. In other words, there's a future in Isaac. But here, you, Lord, you're telling me to sacrifice him. And Abraham, Abraham was clear about what God had promised. And listen, here's, here's the key to faith. Even though it didn't seem humanly possible for it to work out, he still obeyed God and trusted the outcome to him. Guys, that's where faith is found. 
God says, do this, and we're like, well, that doesn't make sense. God, God says, follow me here, and you're like, God, I got a better plan. None of y'all have ever done that. But faith says, God, I trust you, even though I'm not sure how it's going to work out, but God, I'm going to follow you no matter what, because you said so. In fact, we read about it later in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11. That's specifically what happened with Abraham. It says in Hebrews eleven nineteen, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So in other words, Abraham was in his mind like, well, if I kill him, God's able to raise him up, because God made a promise to me. I'm not sure how this is going to play out, but I'm going to obey anyway. And they go up on the mountain, and we continue to see the parallels of the Easter story. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. So here he's walking up the mountain carrying the very things he's going to be sacrificed on, just as Jesus carried his own cross up to Golgotha on that day. And he took his hand in the fire and the knife, so he went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father... He said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire, the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? <laughs> if I was Abraham, I'd say, just be quiet, boy. Just, <laughs> we'll get there. But Abraham said, and this is clear, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Can you not see Jesus here, that perfect lamb that was sacrificed for our sins, the one who was without blemish or spot, perfect sacrifice so that you and I have salvation today. We see them going up together. But when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, Flannel graph Mike, Sunday school kid, I always pictured Abraham as this strong man and Isaac as a little like toddler, preschool, elementary. And I, I can just picture like, sure, dad, whatever, you know, I'll climb up there. But Abraham's 100 years old. Isaac, by this time, is probably early teens, somewhere in there, most scholars believe. There's no doubt that Isaac at that point said, Dad, there is no way I'm getting up on that altar. And if you want to wrestle, this is the time of life I can take you. My, my dad passed away about 85. I still don't think I could take him then, but 100 maybe a shot, okay? But you see something in there that comes back to something even Pastor David said today during worship. You see this willingness to trust God. Here's Isaac. He gets up and, and he lets his father tie him up and he, he gets up and lays down on the top of the wood. Just like Jesus at Gethsemane when he prayed, he said, Lord, if there's any other way you can do this, please take this cup from me. But if not, not my will, but yours be done. Church, faith looks to God and says, God, you are my only hope. You are my only trust. You are my only way. God, I, I will follow you no matter what. So Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. But, but the angel of the Lord called him to heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham, you are willing to take that which is most precious to you and willingly give it to me. Abraham, you were, you were willing to take that in which your future is found in, Abraham, and you were able to give it up just because I told you so. Church, faith is not simple belief, is it? Faith is a deep-seated understanding of who God is in our life and understanding that everything is of Him, everything is from Him, and everything is for Him. 
and to the willingness of Abraham to say, Lord, I don't understand how it's going to work out, but yet I trust you. And I, I came to that place where even the angel Lord had to stop him from sacrificing his son. And there God reveals himself. And in verse 13, it says, Abraham lifted his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. That ram was that substitute, just as Jesus is our substitute. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now check it out. Here's what the angel Lord said to Abraham. Verse 15, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Church, the, the story this morning is interesting because we can look at it and say, wow, look at all these parallels. Look at it foreshadowing Jesus. But can I tell you, there's something even more important in this story. And it's the revelation that what God was asking of Abraham then, he still asked of, of, of us today. What he wanted then, he still wants now. After all, we can say Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. But we read stories and say, oh, God, you've changed. How many know God has not changed? What he wants from you now is what he wants from us then. You see, he is looking for what he found in Abraham and you and I. He, he's looking for what we call Abraham-like faith that leads to God's blessings. I, I've asked you recently, I said, how many of us are blessed? And we're all throwing our hands up, we're blessed. How many want more? And we're like, yeah, we want more blessing. But blessing only flows where faith is found. And faith is not just believing. There, there's, a, there's a uniqueness of faith that Abraham showed here that we have to get into our lives because faith is one of those words that's kind of mushy. Is that a good term? It's kind of mushy. It's kind of like, like the word love. Man, this morning, you, someone's like, I love you, Jesus, with all my heart. We're going to walk outside. You're going to see if you're like, hey, love you, bro. What? Do, do you love me like you love Jesus? No. It's like, it's like we I tell my wife, I love you, I love you, I love you, but I also like biscuits and gravy. You know, I mean, it's just, it's one of those weird kind of words. Faith is the same way. Well, you got to have faith. Everybody has faith. You got to have faith. What is faith? Here's the definition of faith that pleases our God. And it's not up for our debate or definition. Faith that pleases God, Abraham-like faith, is faith that trusts him enough to do what he says. Faith that trusts him enough to do what he says. Because you did this, Abraham, not because you thought it, because you did this, not because you said it was a good idea, but you had no plan on fulfilling it. Because you did this, Abraham's faith was proved by his obedience. Otherwise, his faith was like many people's faith. It was just empty words. And God doesn't honor empty words. The blessing doesn't flow along empty words. Listen, I can talk a good game, but only one thing proves my faith is genuine, and that is my obedience to what God says. Now, Abraham had God's voice. You're like, well, if I heard God's voice, I'd obey because I'd be in fear if I heard God's voice. Whether it's talking to me out of an angel or out of a burning bush, of course I would obey. We have something greater. We have the Word of God. That is the voice of God speaking loudly to us every day. 
The promises of God, we see them over and over again. And in that same expectation is in us that God had in Abraham. We see this in the New Testament in James, James chapter 2. Speaking of the faith of Abraham, in James 2.20 it says, do you, want to be, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? What if Abraham said that he trusted God, but he didn't follow through. Do you think we'd be reading the story and lifting him up? What, do you think he'd have been blessed? Was he made righteous? If he said, yes, God, I will take my son and go to that mountain, but yet he goes another direction. He never obeys God. No. And it's the same with us today. We, we, can, we can speak it. We can say it. We can, we can mean it. We can even feel it. But unless we take action, our faith is dead, church. Unless we, unless we engage in the work that comes into the promise, we're missing the point altogether. Because God is looking for faith that says, I will obey you no matter what. But instead, we, we substitute what I call counterfeit faiths. In fact, I want to kind of wrap our time up today with, with three what I see as counterfeit faiths that is found throughout not just the church, but in our culture, society, and across the world. Because we talk a lot about faith. What faith are you in? <laughs> what faith are you from? Listen, what God is looking for is faith that obeys. What he is not looking for, and here's the first of the counterfeits, he is not looking for just intellectual assent. Oh, I believe. Do you believe? Oh, I believe. Yes. And yeah, it's probably true. It's kind of like if we did a survey and we'd say, hey, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Check. Do you believe that he died on a cross? Check. Do you believe he rose from the grave? Check. Do you believe in UFOs? Most likely. Check. But does your belief change how you live? No. Remember, James, the brother of Jesus, said, look, even the demons believe, and yet they tremble. And yet so many times we're caught up in this faith that's just empty words, and all we say is, God, I will, and we have no intention of doing anything. Look, God, God is not thanking us for mere belief. Hey, good job, church. Thank you for singing those songs today. You spoke words that are true, but unless they get into our hearts, unless they lead us to obedience, it's nothing more than a good song. It's Isaiah the prophet speaking of the people saying, they, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Because again, only out of the heart does the work get produced. So we, we look at this and we recognize that God is looking for a faith that is not just about how much knowledge we have. How many know we're not going to get into heaven because we, we filled out the Scantron? Do they even use Scantrons anymore? Scantron properly. We're not going to get to heaven with a test. We're getting to heaven out of a relationship, a living relationship with our living Lord Jesus Christ. And only one thing proves that relationship, our trust, and that is doing what he says. Here's the second counterfeit that I, I find a lot in church, especially in the, what I call the faith and faith movement, uh, and that's positive thinking. Hey, pastor, would you pray for me because uh, I'm sick? Well, you know, you just need to, you need to think differently. You need to be more positive. Pastor, I'm positive I'm sick. Okay, okay. I grew up around what was called the word of faith movement. I mean, every word you said could either just make it happen or not. And we had more faith in faith than we had faith in Jesus. And yet faith is not just positive thinking. 
Now, don't get me wrong. There's value. I'd rather you be positive than negative. Amen? I, I don't know about many of y'all, like, I meet a negative person, like, hey, let's go have coffee. That should be fun. No. I want to be with someone who's positive. There, there's something about even in our struggles, even in our trials, yes, building that up in our, in our minds, there's a positive. But can I tell you, it doesn't substitute for faith. I can be positive, but still not act in obedience to God. God, I need a financial miracle, God. And I, I, I know your word has said this, and God says, and then honor me with the first fruits. No, but I need a miracle, God. No, doesn't work. God, I need healing. God, I need touch. God says, go, have the elders of the church anoint you with oil and pray over you. And you're like, no, I'm too embarrassed. I just want to slip into service and slip out. Positive thinking. It's good, but it doesn't substitute for faith. Listen, I can be my positive. My team's going to win, but mine didn't yesterday, even though I was positive. I can be positive. My health will improve, but you know what? Sometimes it doesn't. I can be positive that, 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 that everything is going to change. Everything's going to get better. And you know what? There are seasons that might just get worse. In fact, when I look at faith, I believe this is faith is trusting God enough to do what he says, even when my circumstances do not change. Remember the guys on the road to Emmaus? But we had hoped. You see, if your faith is in anything outside of Jesus who was from the beginning to the end, if you're just looking for a miracle worker, there's going to be moments where you're like, but I had hoped. I know people that have turned their back on God, that are angry at God, that are bitter to God because their grandma died. And I'm like, check it out, guys. We're all going to die someday. Grandmas do die. She may have been the most godly woman in the world, but guess what? She's not wanting to come back right now. But yet we build up the expectation and we call it faith. The Bible is clear that some valleys that God leads and some valleys we walk in don't always work out. We, we love reading the stories of the men of faith and the women of faith and all the things we celebrate and we teach back in our kids' church and we, we lift up them because we see the outcomes. But yet, we can look at Hebrews 11, which is known as the Hall of Fame of Faith, and see all the beautiful stories in the first half, but we never teach the second half. But it's equally as real. Chapter 11, verse 32, let me just read you some of the stories of God's faithful people. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of the lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and made strong out of, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight, flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and then it all changes. So far, so good. We're like, that's it. That's the faith I've got. That's what God does. And then he says, but some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two and they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and the caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Boy, that would be a great entry to Christianity. Hey, would you like to join the church and know Jesus? You might get sawn in two, but it's okay. You might be broke. You might be driving a 78 Pinto the rest of your life, okay? 
but our God is good. Because here's the reality of our faith. Their faith was guaranteed that they will win in eternity. But sometimes in this temporal, they might not win. But yet they did not waver in their faith. See, the purpose of this series, what I wanted to get us to see when we look back at the rest of the story is we don't base our faith only if we get our what we hope for all the time. It's already been given to us through the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. We win for eternity. And there's nothing to compare to these 70, 80 years compared to eternity of what God has for us. But in the meantime, heaven does show up. We get glimpses of the kingdom of God working in us and through us. But our faith needs to be in our God, our creator God, who promised through the Messiah all nations to be blessed. And not whether he heals us or our finances are better or we find that soulmate we've been longing for. See, obedience is whether you're living in victory or defeat. You continue to trust God enough to do what he says. Finally, one last counterfeit, and we're going to wrap up. We're going to baptize. This one's always fun to me. Some people think faith is risky living. Brother, unless God bells you out, you have no faith. I hear this at ministers' conferences sometimes. And I want to stand up and say, you're asking us to be stupid then, right? God did not say have big, hairy, audacious goals. He said no trust in Jesus. Don't just make up things and say, God, I'm going to play in the freeway, but you got to bail me out. Oh, there are times to risk, church. There's time faith absolutely brings us to risk, but it's only when God clearly tells us to do so. I, I, I sit on the team that, that we go through and we, we approve or disapprove of people trying to plant churches, and there are times when, when they lay it out, and, and literally they have not heard from God at all. They just want to do something risky for God. And I'm saying for the sake of you, your family, your children, and generations come, no, unless you hear God clearly say, this is what I want you to do. Faith is not living with risky behavior. Faith is trusting in a certain God. The call of Abraham was clear. He had been walking with God a long time. He knew what God had done in the past, and he knew he could do it again. Listen, so often in Scripture, we're looking for the obscure. We're looking for that little weirdness. We're looking for that place of saying, I'm going to prove my faith by doing something no one else has ever done. There is nothing new under the sun. Just prove your faith by simply waking up and saying, God, your word says, I will. Your word says, I will. Your word says, love my neighbor, I'm going to love my neighbor. Your word says to honor my spouse, I'm going to honor my spouse. God, your word says to let my gifts be used for your kingdom. God, there you go, I'm all in. It's not waiting for some grandiose gesture that God's going to stand in heaven and go, man, I didn't see that coming. Way to go. No, those who live by faith will one day hear the words you want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over what? Few things. Let me make you rule over much. So where does the story of Jesus begin in your life? Maybe you're one that you tend to lean more towards the Emmaus side of it, and you're living in this disappointment, discouragement, because you had hopes or expectations that haven't been fulfilled. And I point you back to the cross and, and say, when was the cross not enough? Others, maybe you've not began the journey and you're, you're in that place where you're still trying to figure out life and maybe life has put you in a place of, of enough pain and uncertainty. You're saying, I need, I need something or someone. 
And the Lord has been leading you all along back to where he wants to reconcile you to himself. And the act of faith starts right there. There's no magic in a prayer. There's no magic in shaking a pastor's hand or even being baptized. The supernatural takes place when you just do what his word says. You confess, Lord, I am a sinner. (laughs) I've gone my own way. I've tried life my way, God. I've ignored you. I may not have identified you. It may have just been a yearning or something inside of me, but I know now. And Lord, I want to surrender my life to you. And I want Jesus Christ to be Lord of all. Because you see, when we do that, we're, we're, we're exercising faith. And when we exercise faith, God's blessing flows. He says, I'll forgive you of your sins. I'll bring you into my family. I'll come into your life and begin to change you from the inside out, and you'll never be the same again. But it all starts with faith. Believing enough just to do what he says.